grab a Bible if you have one. We're going to uh, be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to be, for the next, well, I'm not even going to tell you how many Sundays we're going to be going through this, because you're going to get sick of it by the time uh, we get to the end of it anyway. But uh, our mission here at Midtown is to create a movement of gospel transformation through multiple congregations. And so what we're going to be talking about for a prolonged season, maybe for the rest of your life, well, who knows how long you're going to live, you know? Come on. (laughs) What a great way to start a sermon. You will die today. (laughs) Is, uh, what is, what do we mean by gospel transformation? Because I mean, let's be honest, uh, church is kind of hokey sometimes, and Midtown is certainly guilty of its fair share of hokiness, and transformation is one of those words that sounds really kind of religious, you know, to be transformed, you know, to be altered, conversion, you know, metamorphosis, you know, all these radical words like radical you know, it's the kind of stuff you hear at church, isn't it? It's the great stuff that preachers love to say to get your attention that this is going to be the best Sunday in your life, you know, or God is going to meet you and do things he's never done before. Transformation. What does it mean? You know, we, we use those words a lot because uh, as a culture, we really love the idea of change. I mean, we love to think about uh, our lives in the context of how we can create change. So imagine, I'm going to try to use our, here's the unchanged guy. He's sad because his hope is, is that one day he can go to PL, promise land of change. And he's wondering, you know, how can I get from here to here? And we live in a culture that talks about it all the time. You turn on TV. The Biggest Loser, right? I love that show. I mean, you want to talk about change. Wow, radical, radical change. Or Extreme Makeover, you know, where they take a house that's a dump and they turn it into a castle to where even the kitchen sink is a jacuzzi. You know, like, ah, yeah, you have a refrigerator in your bed. Woo! You know, that kind of crazy stuff. That's the kind of change I'm talking about, all right? That's transformation. Or I love, like, uh, The Bachelorette. Did you watch The Bachelorette? You want to talk about change. I mean, that was serious change from a narcissist looking for love change to a famous narcissist looking for love. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who I'm talking about, okay? I could have been talking about the guys. So there. All right. We'll twist on change. And you know what happens is we get stuck. We start thinking about I want change in my life. You want change in your life. And we get stuck. We get stuck by things like our feelings. I don't feel like I'm changing, or I don't feel like I want to change today, or I really feel like I want to change today, or we get depressed, discouraged, all kinds of a range of emotions. Or sin that seems to sabotage what we hope change would be, or a lack of passion, or a lack of discipline. And then there's these haunting shoulds and ought tos. They come after us. I mean, they're like the hounds of hell, aren't they? Well, I really should. I really ought to. And our lives just get sabotaged in this mire where our legs are stuck in a bunch of shoulds and ought tos. And it seems like change can't happen because the biggest obstacle I have to change is me. 
You know, I want change. But I got me, all right? So the question is, how? How do we change? How do we transform? And because we get stuck in ourselves and because we believe we can't escape ourselves, unless, in fact, you're schizophrenic, which has its benefits, all right? Where you are you, but you're really not you, all right? Multiple personalities can work to your benefit. You can change every few minutes. How do I change me when me is the thing that's keeping me from changing? And so what we do is we start looking for tools of change. Like, for example, we go to church. Yeah, and we say, maybe this church is going to be the church that helps me change. I mean, come on. They meet in a really cool venue with incredibly comfortable black plastic chairs. That's the agent for change. And so we go to church. Matter of fact, sometimes we get so disillusioned by church because it doesn't create change in our lives. And so we go looking for another church or another religion or another cult all kinds of stuff. Or, here's a, a good one in our culture, books. You know, what's the latest book that I can read that's going to help me change? I need a book. If I can read, oh, did you read about, oh, that book really impacted my life. Really, how? I don't know. It just took up time to read it. <laughs> or we go to seminars, or I love this one, man. We celebrate teachers, you know? And what's crazy about teachers, this idea, is we live in a world right now to where you're not limited to where you live. You can listen to any preacher in the world almost any Sunday, and you can probably pull up their whole catalog of sermons they've preached for the last 10 years, right? Some phenomenal teachers. I mean, amazing teachers. And guess what happens? I can listen to them all week long, every great preacher in the world, and still it doesn't help me escape me. I'm listening to the best teaching in the world, but I'm not changing. So, we decide that what I really need is willpower. All right? I don't know who Will is, but he is powerful. What we settle for a lot of times, and this, I'm just going to just distract just for a minute, is what we really want is distractions. Is that we get so fed up with, I can't change me, that we go to a life of a firework show. And what I mean by that is, if you've ever been to a firework show and you see something and you go, ah, you know, and oh, that's amazing. But in the, at the very tail end of, ah, what are you doing? You're waiting for the next one, you know? Because if that's the last one, you go, ah. Because a firework show is, that was awesome, but it's not enough, give me another. That was awesome. It's not enough. Give me another. That's awesome. Great distraction. Give me another. Stimulate me. Keep me stimulated and distracted long enough for me to forget that I will never change me. And so we have a life of fireworks shows. We always stay busy. We never stop. We keep going. We keep going. We even get ourselves in all kinds of dramatic situations. And then drama becomes the fireworks show. Did you hear? Oh, 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 you know? Constant distraction. So what is gospel transformation? First Corinthians chapter 15, and this is verse 1. Uh, if you want to read along with me, if you have the house Bible, uh, it's in page 799. If you don't have a Bible, 
Uh, or if you can't remember where your Bible is, or like we say here, if for some reason in your past you've convinced yourself you can't write in your Bible, then please take one of these Bibles that we have here, make it your own, and please write all over it. All right? So we're on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. So Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And what he's saying to them is, first and foremost, I want to remind you. What I taught you, I want to remind you of. Now remember, we're talking about real change. We're talking about changing to the promised land, right? To the PL. And Paul is saying, I want to remind you of what you received, what you took your stand in, and what you were saved in. What's interesting, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute, but all three of those words, when you go to those in the Greek, they're in the passive, which means that these people were recipients of these things. They did nothing for this to come about in their own lives. It came to them. It fell upon them. He said, I want to remind you of the gospel. What's the gospel? For what I received, see, Paul is also passive. He received this gospel. It came to him. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So he's saying to these people, there are three things that I will remind you about that are key to the gospel, is that Christ came and he died for our sins. Now, if that's a new concept for you, it's talking about that when Christ went to the cross, he was a man that had no sin. He had no crime against God, which he had to pay for. And so what was he paying for when he went to the cross? It said, he who, be, who knew no sin, which was Christ, he became sin. He became our sin. Christ took all our sin upon himself so that when he died on the cross, he was dying for us. He was paying the penalty for my transgressions against God, which are numerous. We don't have time to go into this morning. Then he was buried. And why is he saying that? Because he's saying Jesus really died. He didn't faint on the cross, you know. He didn't take a near mortal blow. No, he really died. The significance of that, we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks when we talk about the resurrection. The third thing is that he raised, was raised on the third day. Here's what Paul is saying, and I want to unpack with you today. Let's see. That's a really skinny door. <laughs> but y'all get the idea? Jesus is saying that this crazy world of change here, that there's only one means of change, and it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel came to them through Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when we walk into that gospel, then we become what Scripture says, the old is gone, the new is has come. Okay? Let's, he's new man, all right? And here's what's crazy about this, is that many of you are looking at this and going, uh, okay, I was in Campus Crusade, you know, take the door out of the way and just put a cross there, and it's a cross talk, and I know all this stuff. I'm a Christian now. Then answer this question for me. Are you experiencing radical transformation in your life? 
Bless you. Why not? Why do we still feel stuck when we hear Paul say that because of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, it is birthing for us a new life? Well, grasp this. Jesus did not come so that you could accept him. Let me try to explain. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross hoping that someone would love him for what he did. Jesus didn't go to the cross begging with God, please God, I'm going to die on the cross, and when I die on the cross, I hope that someone will love us now. I just hope Jesus is not the wallflower, you know, at the dance, standing against the wall going, please, please choose me. Please, I swear I dance better than I look. I won't embarrass you. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came to cleanse the temple. Have you ever heard the story of him going into the temple and all the money changers were there and he started kicking over the tables and he took out a whip and he was driving everybody out of the temple and he said, my house will be a house of prayer. Jesus came to clear the temple. See, Jesus didn't come. It's such a sad thing to think that Jesus came to deal with my sins. Jesus didn't come to deal with my sins. He didn't say, well, Father, we're, I'm going to go to the cross because Randy really cusses too much in traffic. You know, when those people cut him off, man, he just blows it. And so I'm going to go to the cross. And when I go to the cross, it's going to change him. And instead of cussing, he's going to bless people. God bless you for cutting in front of me. Jesus went to the cross for me, you know. Or when they get married, that Randy's never going to be discontent with his wife. Or better yet, because I am a believer, now Renee will never be disconnect with me because I'm new. Yeah, that's comical. Because Jesus didn't come to deal with my sins. Jesus came to deal with sin. There's a marked difference. Jesus came to deal with the fact that sin, not my petty sins, sin, and I was a sinner, had killed me. It had put me into a place that Scripture calls death. And when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't dealing with the petty things to try to make me better. Jesus came because he realized I was dead. I was dead. There was no life in me. This right here, guys, I want you to hear this. This right here is the language of a dead man. And Jesus is saying, I've not come to be a better way for you to change. I came to set you free from death because you have no idea what life is. You have no idea. So Jesus came to clear the temple. And how did he do that? Man, he came in aggressively to clean the house. And listen to what he was cleaning the house for. If you don't get today, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of the sermons we're going to do about gospel transformation. Because everything we're going to say for the next two months is based on what I'm about to say. Ephesians 2, verse 22. And in him, you two are being built together. We're being built together. That means that this isn't my transformation that I'm doing. This is not my commitment. God is doing something here. He is building us together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God was clearing the temple of our souls, of all sin, so that he could come and dwell within us. 
He wasn't coming to make me a better person. He was coming to make me a fit vessel for him to dwell within. Whoa. Seriously. See, that's what it means to be fully alive, is I am fully alive with the Spirit of God within me. And we cheapen Christianity. We cheapen it. Because we think that coming to church is just going to help me become better and deal with my sins, you know? Instead of the radical nature of understanding that the Spirit of God lives within me as a new man and a new woman. It's kind of like getting married. And you're at the altar and your friends are in the back right before you walk down the aisle and they go, oh, this is so exciting. I mean, do you love him? Well, he's okay. You know, do you, don't you think he's so handsome? I guess kind of, you know. So why are you doing this? You would not believe the omelet that he makes. It is amazing. And he has promised to make me an omelet every single day of our lives. You're like, wait a minute, stop. You're going to go get married to this guy, not because you want to be with him, but just because of what he can make for you? Do you see how we would look at that and go, that's not love. That's petty. That's what we do when we say Jesus came to deal with my sins to make me a little better person. Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. Jesus came for you. Okay, let me take you to John chapter 2. Write this down if, uh, if you want to come back and read it. This is verse 23. And this is early in Jesus' ministry when he first started uh, performing miracles. And he was about three years away from the cross. Okay? So he's just beginning his journey with his disciples. And he was starting to do some of his first miracles. And he had done them at Passover, at the Passover festival. And he was freaking everybody out. I mean, it's just like, you know, as you can imagine, people were freaking out. Verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. That sounds like these people were Baptists, all right? They were believing, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What does that mean? Do you hear what happened? There's a whole crowd of people saying, we believe in you. And Jesus walked away from them. Wait a minute. They were ready to walk the aisle. Listen to what Ian Thomas had to say about this. Although the crowd appeared to have committed themselves to Christ, the quality of their commitment was such that he was not prepared to commit himself to them. What is the quality of your commitment to Christ? You may be accepted in membership by the church, approved by your friends, and entrusted to some responsible office, but of what possible value can these things be if your commitment to Christ is such that he will not commit himself to you? The value of your commitment to Christ will only be measures of his commitment to you. Let me translate transformation and change is not based on any level of self-will or self-power or some tool that I can gather through determination or discipline. It is based on one thing and one thing only, Christ's commitment to me. See, that's why the resurrection is so powerful. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 4, it says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When Christ is committed to me, he comes and rescues me from my death and raises me to newness of life. It's not my work. It's here is his work. So what are we saying? Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. I swear to you. I mean, look around you. These people sitting around you, I promise you they're a lot worse than they want you to believe they are. But let me tell you something about yourself. You don't let yourself see how bad you are. I'm not sure we can handle it. We play all kinds of games to justify. So cheer up. The reason is, is because if you're a lot worse than you think you are, none of these tools are going to work anyway. Because you're never going to be set free from yourself unless somebody outside yourself with supernatural power comes and sets you free. And that's what Christ has done. When he died to the cross, he says, I am fully committed to my people. And I've come to rescue them to newness of life. Okay, let's keep reading. After that, he's talking about Jesus' resurrection, his appearance. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. This is Paul writing this. Also, as to one abnormally born. What does that mean? Okay, grab this. Paul is saying Jesus came back. He appeared to a bunch of people. And then he appeared to me. And he describes himself as abnormally born. In the Greek, that's the word for an aborted thing. Why would Paul say that? What Paul is saying is, I was like a premature baby. I was like something that was unwanted and aborted and left to die that had no power within itself to rescue itself. It's like a preemie baby. You look at a preemie baby and you say, get up and rescue yourself. Feed yourself. Live. There's no way. That baby has no hope unless something outside itself comes in and rescues it. And Paul is saying that about himself that he was passive, that God came into his existence and bushwhacked him. He ambushed him. Have you ever read the story of Paul on the road to Damascus? I mean, he was persecuting the church. He was an enemy of the cross. He was putting people to death. And Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You know, what's crazy about that is we say, well, that was Paul. Guess what? That's you too. Some of you are here this morning, you don't know what you're doing here. You have more doubts than you have answers to any questions. And yet, you're here. And God is ambushing you because something is singing in your heart because you're hearing a song. It's an ancient song that's been sung since the creation of the world that God is after his own. And he's not waiting for us to change. He's coming into us to change us. Some of you have been ambushed here this morning. Or you've been in the process of being ambushed, bushwhacked, lay weighed. You use the word. Paul went on to say that I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not deserving to be apostle. He said I even persecuted the church. If change depends on us, we're, we're in big trouble. But, and this is the biggest but in this passage. Take that however you want. Uh, for I'm the least of the apostles, 
and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, and you ought to underline these words in your Bible, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Let me stop there. Paul is saying, hey, I agree with you. I was a lot worse than I thought I was. Matter of fact, I was a lot worse than you guys thought I was. Matter of fact, I'm a lot worse than you guys think you are. When somebody comes to me and says, man, I got to talk to you about something. I'm like, oh, you probably do. Because we're just dealing with the stuff that you can see. You ought to see the stuff you can't see. That's the stuff we ought to really be dealing with together. But we're good at hiding from ourselves and from each other. Paul said, the grace of God exploded into his reality, into his broken world, and showed how broken it was. Everything he was committed to was a lie, and yet God changed him, and only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus could bring about that change. So you're sitting here this morning, you're going, okay, 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 I've heard this before. All right. Grace, grace, Bible word, transformation, transformation, sins, you know, the cross, Jesus. Still, where's the power of change? Grab this. It takes courage to do what I'm about to ask you to do. And that is to have courage. It takes courage to trust somebody. See, in my life, I've learned that nobody is trustworthy. Seriously. You're not trustworthy. I mean, are you 100% trustworthy in everything and all things at all time? No. All you got to do is blow it one time and then you're going to get the qualification. Well, you're not completely trustworthy. So you're not trustworthy. So I've learned that people are not trustworthy. I've also learned this from scripture that trust is not something that somebody earns. Trust is something I choose to give. Because if I have to wait for you to earn it, guess what? You're never going to jump high enough, long enough, far enough. You're not going to swim far enough. You're not going to scream loud enough. You, no mountain is high enough for you to climb to earn my trust. It ain't going to happen. And one slip, that's it. Trust is something that we give, and it takes courage to trust. And because we don't have that kind of courage, we stop putting our trust that Jesus is the agent of change. We stop trusting in him, and what we start trusting in is us. And this is what self-trust sounds like. It's really coward trust. I have no courage to trust you, Lord, so the only person I'm going to trust is me, which is delusionary, and it's a coward. Because it's delusionary into thinking that I'm the only trustworthy person on this planet. Talk about self-delusion, all right? But still we do it. And here's what it sounds like. I promise. I swear, I swear I'll never commit that sin again. I vow to you today that from this point on, I am going to be devoted to you. I swear that sermon was so awesome this morning, it will change my life forever, I'm sure. Because I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it work. I promise I'll listen to it every day. I mean, I do. That was a joke. So it wasn't funny. All right. Okay. We get on the treadmill of I'm going to do better. I'm going to get better. I promise I will. 
this year will be different. This day will be different. This week will be different. And we keep making that vows. Once again, let me read you Eden Thomas. This is the tragedy of Christendom today, as it was the tragedy of God's people in Israel. The Israelites were stuck in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. A people who lived in self-imposed poverty. Every day they spent in the desert was a day they could have spent in the promised land, in Cana, for God had already given them the land. And yet they didn't have the courage to trust him, and so they remained in the desert. Cana in the Bible is not heaven. It's not pie in the sky when I die. Cana in the Bible, as we understand in the New Testament, is Christ himself. And right now, living his victorious life through me, indeed, it is only the Lord Jesus himself who is capable of living the Christian life. He not only reconciles you to God by his death, but he saves you moment by moment by his life. That is to say, he not only died for what you've done, but he rose again to live in you, to take the place of what you are, his strength for your weaknesses. So here's the crazy thing. He not only rescues from me, he not only puts his spirit in me, all right? Boop, 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 all right? Now, Christ, Paul says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loves me and gave his life for me. What Paul is saying is now Christ is living his life through me. Wow, that's hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, Jesus living his life through me, you know, and courage to trust him. Let me tell you what gets in the way of my courage to trust him is my past experiences. Imagine, for example, they had a daughter. And she's like precious, you know. She's just this, like just beautiful, just unbelievable, you know. Just rosy cheeks, you know, and the hair bows, ribbons, dresses. She's just unstoppable force of just yumminess, you know. And so she goes to her first day of school, you know, and she's only lived in this environment of mommy thinks I'm the best thing that's ever walked on this earth, you know. I can't take a bath because I actually walk across the bath water, you know. Just that kind of, you are awesome and magnificent. And she goes to school in her favorite dress, and all the girls at school look at her and go, hmm, that's such an ugly dress. And they point at her and they start laughing. Look at your dress, look at your dress, you know? And she begins to cry. And she comes home and she tells her mom what happened. I was at school and I had my favorite dress and the one that you say is so pretty and they said it was ugly and they said I was ugly. And then here is where she steps off the cliff. Mommy, nobody likes me. Mommy, nobody loves me. Mommy, I am unlovable. Mommy, I am ugly. Doesn't that sound so silly? That a little bitty girl would begin to take one experience and step into a world of saying, now this is what's true. This is what's true about me. A good friend of mine uh, was a cop for 17 years down in Miami. And we were talking, he's Beautiful guy, just rough, grew up in New York City. You guys would love him because he's pretty irreverent. And uh, 
He was in a shootout. He was called to a 7-Eleven where he killed a man when he was a cop. And John, that was 30 years ago. I said, John, what's that like now? He says, I cannot pull into a 7-Eleven without my heart racing 180 beats a minute. He doesn't live in Miami anymore. I'm like, why? He goes, man, oh, he said, all the adrenaline, all the memories, everything comes back to me the minute I drive into a 7-Eleven. I said, what do you do? He goes, now what feels true to me is no 7-Eleven is ever safe. Just like that little girl. What feels true to me is I'm ugly, I'm unlovable, I'm unlikable. There's nothing good about me. And when we begin to believe these messages of the past, and we hear our God saying to us through Jesus Christ, you are saved, you are beautiful, then we have to make a choice. Is this true? You're unlovable? Or is this true? That takes courage. That's why Paul said, hey, it's all true. I was an aborted thing. I persecuted the church. I'm the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's transformation. That's it. I had a few more things I wanted to say. But let me just wrap up with this. As we go through this series on transformation, uh, how much did we get at this moment? Say it, Dave. Everything. Is that true? The promise that he makes us in 2 Peter is he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. It doesn't say if you've been a Christian for 10 years and you've committed to memorizing the book of Leviticus, then you've got everything. Because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, I have everything. Why don't I feel like I have everything? That is a great question you should ask yourself. Why don't I live like I have everything? That's a great question you should ask yourself. If I have everything, then why am I not using it? Oh, that is a beautiful question to ask yourself. Imagine yourself sitting on a cold winter night, and I come walking up to you, and you're freezing, you know, because you're just standing there, you know, and you got your PJs on, and I'm like, Dude, why are you so cold? Well, it's 30 degrees outside. Well, I know it's 30 degrees. I'm not an idiot. You know, I can see that it's cold. But there's a huge coat sitting at your feet. Do you see the coat? I, I, I see it. Yeah, I, I see it. Well, does the coat have lice in it? No, it's an awesome coat. Matter of fact, it's God's coat. <laughs> All right? Like, it's... It's God's coat. Well, does it fit you? Custom made for me. Do you like the color? My favorite color. When you put it on, does it make you look ugly? No, more beautiful than anything I've ever been in my life. Why are you putting it on? I can't put it on. Why? Pick up the coat. Put it on. That's why Paul said, no, I worked harder than all of them. And then he stopped himself and he said, no, no, wait a minute. That's not true. He did work his tail off, but then he said something remarkable. Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He put on the coat. He put on the coat, and he goes, I've been transformed. And 
man, don't I look beautiful? Oh, the world is a liar. I'm not ugly or worthless or shameful or abused. Those are not my names anymore. I am beautiful. There's no danger at the 7-Eleven, no matter what the world says. Because I got this cut. Wait. Maybe I'm not beautiful. It's the grace of God in me that's beautiful. And we're going to be talking about how to wear that jacket for the next two months. That's where we're going. But do you see why if you don't get this point? It's all about Jesus. He has ambushed us. And he has changed us. That's why Paul said, will you open your eyes and see? Will you open your eyes and see? Would you quit being like a little child who closes their eyes and thinks, if I close my eyes and I can't see anybody, then nobody sees me. I'm hiding. Let's open our eyes. This table, this table wrecks me. Because Jesus said it's not just enough for you to have a Bible. It's not just enough for you to come and hear it in church. It's not just enough. Jesus, I want you to taste it. I want you to smell it. I want you to participate in it. I want you to swallow it. I, I, want, you, I want you to experience that he gave everything for us. When we were his enemies, he came to the cross. When we were saying never to God, God was saying, I am more committed to you than you can ever be committed to me. Isn't that amazing? What kind of love is that? That when I'm cursing his name, he's going to the cross for me so that he can come and rescue me from me. That's what this table's about. He values you that much. He's committed to finish what he started. So this is a table of courage. I'm asking you to come. To believe that you've been forgiven. And to proclaim with me, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, Jesus, do your thing. Do that thing that only you can do. Because it's true, we're a lot worse than we think we are. We're even a lot better at deceiving ourselves and each other than we want to even admit. But you see it all. You're not fooled. You've not walked away. You don't just see a little piece of us. You see all of us. And you call us your beloved. That's astounding. What kind of love is that? We play games, and you give everything. But this morning, Lord, open our eyes. I pray you let us see. Let us come to this table and remember, and let us proclaim. In Christ's name we pray.